can follow along on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, we are reading sections in Mark chapter 14 because there's sort of a, there's parallel stories going on in this stage of the gospel account. They're intertwined. Uh, they're, they're sort of, we're, we're checking in with the life of Peter. We're seeing glimpses of what he says, what he does, how he reacts to the things that Jesus says and does. And so uh, the A plot, of course, is Jesus, our Savior, going to the cross. The B plot sort of is Peter playing the role of any person who would be an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, who would see Jesus um, interacting with people and the way he interacted with people, who he spent time with, seeing the healings, hearing the teachings, um, seeing Jesus go through challenges and always have a composed answer to a theological question, always being gracious to the people who need grace and confronting the people who need confronting. And, and Jesus is always sort of like composed and thoughtful and present and loving and countercultural. Sort of, and then we get to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus starts to come to grips with what's happening to him, the sin that he will take on on the cross, the punishment that he's about to bear for sinners, and then we start to see Jesus sweat, bleed, bleeding sweat because of his anxiety and 
pain just at the thought of what he's about to do. So we're sort of at a pivotal moment in the A plot. And the the B plot here is uh, Peter asking and saying all the things that we would say because we'd be confused. If you followed Jesus, you would say something at some point, having seen all the things that Jesus uh, did, you would say, how would any of us ever leave you? Any of, and we, would be, we would be dumb to ever abandon you or to de- deny you or disavow our allegiance to you. We're here, we're, we're ride or die. Like we'd be stupid to abandon you. And then hours later, hours later, Peter says, I don't know this man. This is the account that we see. So what I mean is the B plot is us. And we should allow Peter's denial of Jesus to function as a mirror to our own lives and ask questions like this. How are we likely to withdraw our allegiance to Jesus like Peter did? How how are we tempted to publicly avoid our association with Jesus or privately um, deny the call of Jesus on our lives? Other questions sort of in the constellation of this issue would be, What would compel a Christian in one stage of life to claim allegiance to Jesus, to worship him, to trust him as Savior and Lord, and in another stage, walk away from it? Or what would cause a Christian to be confident and explicit about their faith in one setting and around one group of people, and then in a different setting and group of people be timid and privatized in their faith? So for the sake of our conversation this morning, as we sort of investigate and explore um, getting real with ourselves and then seeking sort of God's way forward with this issue, um, we're just gonna call all of this denying Jesus for the sake of simplicity. And we're gonna look at three things. Denying Jesus, it's, it's forms, it's causes, and the way forward. It's forms basically asking the question, what is the nature of our, this tendency in us to align with Jesus and then deny him? And what's the cause? Like, what's happening in our heart, the internal motivation that would cause that? And then, what's the way forward? Like, what does God do with people like us that are torn, thrown about by these sorts of uh, tendencies? So, let's use Peter as a mirror into our own lives and uh, investigate. So, it's forms. What, um, what does it really look like to disown, disavow, and deny our allegiance to Jesus? Well, you'll notice even in the passage that it takes different forms. There's sort of like an overt way of walking away from faith. There's a covert way of walking away from Jesus. There's a passive way to conveniently walk away from the things that you've said about your faith. And then there's like an active way of doing it. If you look in verse 27, uh, Peter says, I'm sorry, Jesus says you'll all fall away and then Peter declares, even if all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus predicts this thing about the rooster crowing and in verse 31, uh, Peter insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And I love here that if you look in verse 31, it says all others said the same. So Peter's like a ready, fire, aim kind of person and uh, he's like, even if everyone leaves you, I'll never leave you. And then the rest of the disciples were like, yeah, us too. <laughs> like they're just in the back at the last supper just eating their food like, oh yeah, yeah totally. Probably. So uh, Jesus is like, uh, I'm sorry, Peter is like die hard. He understands that look at the life we've lived with you, Jesus. The things that we saw, think back on our lives before you that, that um, we were just fishermen. And then a rabbi came, which is like a status change. 
And then that rabbi proved to be like this monumental historic figure in human history. And then as we get to know him, we're sort of piecing together all the way here, I'm thinking of into Mark chapter eight, where Jesus asks him, who do you say I am? And Peter's the one that first declares at that sort of like junction point in the book of Mark, you are the Christ. Like loading all of this historic expectations and, and theology and experience with the people of Israel and like putting all of that on Jesus' shoulders and saying, uh, you know, declaring you're the Christ. He's saying, after I saw all of that stuff, how could anyone walk away from it? But it's, it comes in different forms. It comes in different forms. It came in, it came in different forms even with Peter. You'll notice at the beginning of, um, you know, it, it, later in chapter 14, verses 66 on, Peter was first warming his hands by the fire, sort of conveniently in the back, while Jesus was a part of the sham nighttime trial after being taken away from the Garden of Gethsemane, and now he's around all these religious elites, the Sanhedrin and the teachers of the law and all those people, and so Jesus is being tried. They ask him, who do you say you are? He says, uh, or, or do you claim to be the Messiah? He says, I am, and after that point, they curse him, they beat him, they spit on him. All that stuff is happening to Jesus, and then Peter is at a distance with, next to, like, like a fire, next to the people who took Jesus away. And he's warming his hands. Like, if you're gonna uh, betray your savior, at least stay warm, you know? <laughs> like, at least, at least be comfortable while you're doing it. He's in the back, just warming himself, trying to hide away. So at that stage, early in the denial, before he's called out publicly, it's still a denial of Jesus because it's, a, it's just a passive form of the same thing. By the way, it's an important question to ask. Where the heck are the other disciples? Like Peter is only really in this situation to deny Jesus and be this sort of like famous betrayer of, of the Lord and disavower and disowner of Jesus because he actually was there. The rest of the disciples are, are nowhere to be seen. So the denial of Jesus, it comes in overt sort of public forms, but it also comes in this very passive, convenient, warm, comfy forms. And I don't know which one's worse. You know what I mean? Like when Jesus in uh, the book of Revelation said, I'd rather have you hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and because of that, there's like a unique problem to being lukewarm with, with Jesus. Like, I don't know whether it's better to just be honest and self-aware and say, I don't, I don't know this man or to be warmed by the fire, sort of just waiting for your moment to pop in and, and help Jesus, but then like be in that convenient passive way to do it. There's a few trends even like in American Christianity that I wanna bring out quickly as illustrations for us. Because you might be thinking, I'm, uh, I'm not a coward, I'm not prone to um, warming myself by a fire, worrying that I'd be killed. Um, maybe you even think that if I was put in that position, I probably would like rise up and do something about it. Um, but the passive form, the passive form, the way we're lulled into the warmth of denying Jesus passively, that's maybe more pernicious. So an article came out this week in the Atlantic magazine and it was um, citing research that's come out of people who have left the church during COVID, like since 2020. And so now we're, we're distant away from all that phenomenon and from the original lockdowns to have like data and um, as a random happenstance, the person who's putting on the study, which is sort of the best study so far and is very academic, partnering with all these different colleges and, um, and uh, analytics firms and all that stuff, 
the person who's putting it on is an acquaintance of ours here at Reality, and I was having breakfast with the guy, and I didn't know he was doing all this really cool stuff. We were just eating breakfast, and he was like, I got this cool grant to study why people left church, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And he said, you wouldn't believe the data that we're getting on like actually why people are checking out. Like the narrative is not matching the, the statistical evidence. And so this week, that data was covered in the Atlantic Magazine, and I wanna read you a quote from it. The title of the article is, The Misunderstood Reasons Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church. The defining problem driving people out is just how American life works in the 21st century. So, here's the quote. The great dechurching finds that religious abuse and more general moral corruption in churches have driven people away. This is, of course, an indictment on the failures of many leaders who do not address abuse in their church, but researchers Davis and Graham also find that a much larger share of those who have left the church have done so for more banal reasons. The defining problem driving most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America and because of it, community life in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. So I can't go into the data on it. It's just so fascinating to see. The, the questions were asked, um, when did you leave? What are the boxes that you check as to why you left and what is your chance at coming back into church? And the simple point I wanna make is this. The disciples fell into a very passive form of abandoning Jesus simply by being gone. And there is an equivalent issue with those of us who show up with Jesus when it's advantageous to us. But there's a tendency for us to live a very privatized, personal, therapeutic faith and when we get lost into a very individualistic, very therapeutic, very much um, Jesus is helping me discover myself sort of faith, then we end up being a lot like the disciples and a lot like Peter, warming ourselves up while the cause of Christ is um, expecting us, requiring us, calling us into something that's just more active and faithful. And when I say personalizing our faith, I mean we're just very avoidant and quiet about our faith in many forms. And um, man, I wish I were a hero in this area of life, you know? Like I, I've lived in different, a few different places, and um, now we live in the city with my, my kids and my poodle and my wife. Um, and so my, the poodle thing, we have a poodle. His, why are you laughing? Um, <laughs> So we have a poodle, his name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he's named after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is like a Christian hero. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is my personal hero and I was reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when I got the dog. And by I say got the dog, I don't mean I got the dog. My wife showed up at home and was like, we got a dog. And I was like, okay. So we have this dog, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when I lived in a very sort of like 
I guess, small town, maybe more conservative place that had a lot of different churches on a lot of different corners of our town. I would go to the dog park and I would play with my dog. My dog was, at least in the top three percentile of like the cutest dogs at the dog park. And so people would come up to me and go, what a dog. And I would go, that's true, his name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We'd talk, yada, yada, yada. It's easy to invite someone to church. That's what I'm saying. It was easy to be like, this is a Christian hero. He's named after this guy. He tried to kill Hitler, but then, uh, this, is, this is the guy, and it was just sort of an excuse to be like, I bet you I could like talk about how cool Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, yada, 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 Jesus, yada, yada, come to church. <laughs> it was so easy to do that at the dog park because you're just standing next to someone and you have nothing else to talk about about your dogs, you know, and nobody wants to go any deeper than that. So I would talk about all those different, you know, things, but it was just so easy because it was like a general social commitment of like, people go to church, people are Christians, this is... Santa Barbara, you know, this is not other places. And, um, and I'll grant you, it's different here, you know? Like, it is different. The power structures of our city are different. Um, what constitutes something that gets scoffed at is different. The, um, the narrative around an ethic can get lumped in with things that maybe aren't problematic, but sound problematic. Maybe they're not pro- problematic in the way you're trying to live them out, but they sound problematic. I'll grant that, like, it's a, it's a funny place to be a Christian in San Francisco. It's also a wonderful place to be a Christian in San Francisco. Like, this is a wonderful place to be called, that God's got you in this place for just such a special season or long season to commit to the cause of Christ. I'm granting to you, it was easier when I lived in the suburbs, and it is different now. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that that's part of like, the beauty of doing life together as a church with Christ, is that like, that's a pretty regular dialogue about how to live out the gospel in a way that helps people to see it, to hear it, and to live with courage when we would be tempted to say, there are these other power structures that are very secular in our city, how could anyone really be external, vocal, engaged with that? Instead, I wanna like withdraw with my Christian friends. We'll be over here safe while the rest of these people can do what they want with our Savior. I don't wanna overstate it, but I wanna give you an illustration of how this works sometimes because I read a book recently by an author named Jeff Vanderstelt and the book is called Gospel Fluency and in the first chapters of the book, he tells the story of, he's a pastor and an author and he, he told the story of a woman who became a Christian at his church and Um, she worked in sort of a big corporate environment with lots of different people, and she knew lots of different people at work, and and then she um, was really struggling in life. And she had lots of friends at work, but otherwise was living a very lonely, isolated sort of experience. And while she was going through trials and challenges and loss in her life, and was facing a lot of depression, she went to church. And over the course of some time, she became a Christian, and got involved with church things, went to Bible study and started going to church a lot and was like growing in her faith to the point when she was sort of asking the question, um, what should I do in relationship to my workmates and my work environment? And so the book sort of just details this young Christian and sort of these ideas around how do you live out the gospel um, in your workplace? The implications of, of Christian belief around ethics and the value of human life and Um, a Christian view of money and power and sex and sharing the gospel that has changed your life with other people in a way that is um, 
uh, is powerful, is clear, but also doesn't violate HR guidelines, you know, like all of those different things. So she's, she's a new Christian, she's, she's trying to work that out, and so she starts to get a little bit more vocal about her faith in her workplace. And then once she does, she's telling the story about how she was really struggling, she came to church, she became a Christian, God's changing her life and empowering her in ways that she didn't expect, and so she's sharing this with her coworkers, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, her coworkers are like coming out of the woodwork saying, that's so great. That's so powerful. I'm a Christian too. How cool is it to have a sister in Christ in our workplace? Wow, this is really neat. I wonder if we should start a Bible study, whatever, you know? And she heard this so much from her coworkers as she was talking about her faith that she began to get frustrated because she was saying, you know what, for years, I was really struggling, I was lonely, and, and she, she sort of complimented her coworkers and saying, I was always so happy to know you I saw your joy and your hope and your resiliency and it was an example to me. But in all of that time where you were kind and you were hopeful and you sort of exampled the life that I wanted, but you didn't talk about where you got that joy or got that hope or where that power came from, the message that it sent me was, I can have that kind of life, I have to just do it on my own and look inside myself for it. And so, unless that thing gets made explicit to someone, she's making the case to her friends, unless something makes that power, that change, that hope, that joy explicit, the message that it sends is not, oh, I wonder if that person by chance is joyful because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, taking on sin, freeing us up, giving us a hope, new life, living hope from the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Like, who's gonna piece that together in a secular corporate environment? No, it's not gonna happen. So she's telling the story. It, it only made it worse because I wanted that life. I kept looking inside myself and just trying to think positive, and I couldn't do it. So we personalize our faith. It's just a tendency for us to say, I don't know how to make it public. I don't know how to make it overt. I don't know how to stand by our allegiance to Jesus. And so we do it. It's, it's the, the phenomenon of the de-churching and the privatization of faith is the same phenomenon that is the quieting and the deflection around Jesus for us personally. I also wanna just give an encouragement to another more, more overt form of denial, and that is sort of this trend within Christianity around deconstruction. Uh, deconstruction is a very imprecise term, deconstructing Christians or Christians who are deconstructing their faith. Imprecise term. Um, but this is a general trend where previously very active and involved Christians, mostly people who have brought up in a Christian family or in, within Christian culture, go through a process of reevaluating their beliefs, then find Christianity incomprehensible or incompatible with the life that they wanna live. This is a more overt form of denial. Now granted, it's couched in different kind of language and different experience, however, the end result of those who sort of deconstruct and pull apart their faith and find that they don't wanna live as a Christian anymore, the end result is still very similar, which is somebody saying, after some course of a process, saying, I no longer am aligned with Jesus. I don't know this man. So you might say, hold on. If I'm deconstructing, I'm pulling apart my faith, I'm questioning things, I'm reevaluating the things that I was believed in when I was younger, uh, that is different than being a coward and not standing up for Jesus. Um, but I wanna like, press on that just for a minute. Um, and I'm not the normal preacher here, so if I offend you, then I'll just, just come for Dave, you know? I, I just wanna press on a little bit, because you might 
have, you, you might be questioning your faith, you might be struggling your faith and really kind of like saying, I wanna reevaluate all this stuff and see if I really wanna do this anymore. I want you to know that that actually is a really healthy process. I think any mature Christian goes through seasons of that where they go, do I really believe, like, or, or am I really understanding this correctly? That is a super healthy process. The deconstruction and then reconstruction process is normal for any mature Christian. I don't want you to feel a sense of stigma around like doubt or questioning, it's very normal. The hope is, is that when you reconstruct those things, you become a more humble and a more thoughtful and a more dedicated Christian. That's like normal for Christian growth. Um, but maybe you don't fear religious persecution from the government. Or maybe you don't really fear the religious elites, Sanhedrin and the teachers of the law, pulling you away and, and dying because of the, the religious elite power within our culture. So it makes sense that we wouldn't quite identify with Peter's denial because we don't live a life where we constantly fear being aligned with Jesus and paying a severe price, being killed or being in prison because of it. But what if your fear about what Jesus could take away from your life is different? What if your fear about Jesus has more to do with Jesus disrupting your radical individualism and your constant project of self-exploration and and sort of like seeking out the good life and never really letting anything disrupt your course of investigating and seeking and never committing to anything enough that it could disrupt your ability to sort of be nimble and just say, I'm gonna live for this and then I'm gonna live for this and then I'm gonna shift my identities around so that I never lose anything in my relationship with Jesus. Like, what if you sort of, I'm mixing metaphors here, but what if, what if the process of, of your denial is a little bit more keeping Jesus at arm's length so that your allegiance to him is never so strong that you couldn't back up from it, that, that you couldn't feel that breaking down sense of remorse, I'm abandoning Jesus, which is where Peter is, because we never got close enough, because you're in more of the place of the disciples, and saying like, like what, what are the disciples thinking in this moment? They're thinking, how could anyone be a follower of Jesus in this political environment? Like the Roman government, we got the Sanhedrin. How is anyone supposed to, how would God create this plot line where I'm expected to do that in this environment? And we might feel the same thing in San Francisco. You go like, this Christianity is incomprehensible. How is anyone supposed to like love Jesus and worship Jesus and read the Bible and have this thriving faith when this is the city that he's called me to? You might be in the same place that the disciples are in. And part of, like I said, I'm not trying to beat up on anyone or even like shame the process, but, um, if you're in a very confusing, frustrated part of your faith and you're thinking that maybe I can't go forward with it, maybe the pain here is that um, you've reframed the denial because the real narrative and the thing like that rules your life is the narrative of self-expression and self-discovery always seeking, never finding a conviction to follow Jesus so strongly that it might cost you something. I think that's a very pernicious form of passive denial that we've, many of us fall into. It's because all of us are trying on some level to live out the plot of Frozen, uh, like we want, or the first act of Frozen at least, where the, the narrative of our life is like we have to look into ourselves and then like the world might stigmatize what's in there, but you just have to let it go. You know, we're always just saying like the, the, the chief end of man is to let it go. What, what are the lyrics? I'm trying to think if I can read them without singing them. It's sort of hard to do. The, uh, this girl is saying the wind is howling like uh, the swirling storm inside. I forget the lyrics. I wrote them down here. 
Um, I can't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Don't, don't let him in, don't let anyone see. Um, be a good girl that you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. I was watching the movie, I remember, and I was thinking, I think I know what Elsa is closeted about, but it was, turns out it was just icicles, <laughs> you know, something different. So she's saying like, oh, heaven knows, be a good girl, don't let anyone else see what's inside, and then like her triumphant moment is like when she's doing all the ice business, right? And uh, if we've learned anything from our social media age, it is that um, people let it go way too much, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> you just, maybe you should keep that inside. You know? I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but we, we're, we're on this narrative of self-discovery. I'm taking too long to explain this. I, like, the, we, we're saying, like, if you just look inside, and if you just keep discovering, and then sometimes in our faith things get hard, or you get to a certain age and God hasn't given you a spouse yet, or um, you fail in your Christian life and you're, you're a coward and you thought that you were a brave Christian but then you, you, then you exhibited cowardice and so you start to come to grips with the fact that your sin runs a lot deeper than you thought and that maybe a lot of your Christian faith is propped up by the faith of other people or uh, about the frequency of church attendance and, and you have these externalities around like was the music good or did I get into a vibe at church or like did, did the prayer meeting support me enough, did the community group uh, you know, supply a need, and like you've got all these externalities, and when they stop working, you sort of can get really stagnant and dry and frustrated in your faith, and then we get to these like difficult places in life where God's not doing what he did at one point, and he's not holding up his end of the bargain, and because we live in the late modern West, our tendency is to say, I need to look right inside and just reevaluate every part of this and see if I can discover in myself something that would maybe have Jesus with my life and maybe not. But I guess my question is like, where are we getting that from? It's because we're adopting a different religious belief about the spiritual, expressive, individualistic self to say like, the, there is a truth inside my heart that will lead me to true humanity instead of the gospel, which is to say, that's outside of you and it's only in Jesus. So final thought on this is just um, the sin that we have in our life, I wonder if one of the angles that we can look at our sin is through this lens of allegiance and breaking allegiance with Jesus. What's its cause? That's the forms it takes, what's its cause? Quickly, the cause has something to do with what causes a Christian to find the line of allegiance when the expectation is just too high and then breaking that allegiance because we just get to that moment where we say the deal's off. The contract is broken. What would cause someone to follow Jesus, depend on his grace, see his life and see his power, and then get to a place where you go, this is a bridge too far, you've asked too much of me. What would cause that in the Christian? And Peter finds that line because the, the, the requests of him in this courtyard are escalating. If you look in verse 66, it says Peter was below in the courtyard and then this servant girl and the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene. So pay attention to that in verse 67. You were with him. And he says, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, which is an easy thing to say. Like, I don't know. I, um, I lived in a place where, it was a very global city, 
And so if I ever didn't wanna talk, into, my wife is fluent in French, and if I ever didn't wanna to talk to anyone, I would just have my wife teach me a sentence in French, and I would pretend to be French. Anybody else ever do this? Or you just, you just dip into a different language, and you're like, I je ne comprends pas, you know, whatever. You would just say, I don't know, you know, this is what he's doing. He's just very conveniently saying, I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so he's just bowing out of it, because he's saying, you're with, this, you are with this guy. And then if you look in verse 69, it says this fellow is one of them. No, he is one of them. There is an allegiance here. There's a connection that we should expect from this guy warming himself by the fire to the man on trial, Jesus. And then the crowd comes by and makes it even worse. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So they, they detected his, his Galilean accent, and they said, oh, wait, it's the Passover. There are people from all over the place coming into Jerusalem at, at this festival, at this time. All of these people who are in Jerusalem during the Passover have said, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about these claims about Jesus? Have you talked to him? Have you talked to him? And, and he was from this region of Galilee. So when Peter has the accent, the Galilean accent, she says, wait a minute. Like, I know I saw you, and you sound just like the people from that region. And then he begins to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. The Greek in verse 71 is sort of interesting because the, the word curse is anathematize. And so the English translation is great. It just says, he began to call down curses, and in the English it's left ambiguous because it is sort of an interpretive decision that we have to make that the grammar in the Greek does give us something about. What I mean is, he began to call down curses. Separately from that, he swore, I don't know this man. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm, there is no allegiance between me and this person. And he proves it by using a very strong word and calling down curses. And the transitive verb in the Greek has to attach to something. And so I think the interpretive decision we make here is, he called down curses on Jesus separately swore, I don't know this person. I anathematize, I, I curse, and I swear to you, there's no allegiance to this person. The illustration here, sort of the, the, the point here is that it illustrates exactly how severe he's trying to find verbiage to say curses. Curses on all that, on that person. I don't know him. It was a total rejection and denial. So what causes us to get to a place where we're saying, worship Jesus, pray, I live as a Christian, and then say, I can't do it, I can't go that far. Well, it's a matter of mixed motivations, isn't it? It's a matter of, of this thing that all of us carry where part of us are Judas and part of us are Mary. If Judas betrayed Jesus and sold him off, and then uh, earlier in the chapter we see this woman who pours perfume on Jesus, and in the Gospel of John, um, it's Mary, Mary's brother's Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Mary pours out the perfume on Jesus, which is like this sort of ridiculous gesture of love towards Jesus. I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever poured perfume on you, but it's sort of like, why did you do that? You know, it's very generous, and it's a gesture of love, but Jesus didn't need a whole bottle of perfume poured on him, did he? And uh, Mary didn't need to show that lavish a gesture for Jesus, um, for her own purposes, because Mary already got the thing that she wanted most in life, which is her brother Lazarus to be raised from the dead. So Mary didn't need anything from the relationship, she just had her needs, needs met. And then Jesus didn't need the gesture, so Judas is using Jesus for his own purposes, and then when Jesus doesn't solve 
for his problems, he sells them off. And Mary's doing the opposite. She's simply giving to Jesus out of response to who he is and what he's done, lavishly, out of simple delight. And that's the choice that we have to make as Christians. Is our contract with Jesus one where I perform for you, and when I perform for you, you give me the life that I expect, the raise, the, the internal peace, the, the warm fuzzy feelings, the, the spouse that I want, the kids that I want, the security that I want, the pension that I want. Is, is it I perform for you, God, and then you hold up your end of the bargain, and if you don't, I'm gonna start deconstructing and couch it in language that says I'm just seeking and who the heck knows what's true in life. When in actuality, if we're just true about it, I'm beating up on you now. If, if we're honest about it, we're just going, I thought I would be married by now. I thought, I thought I wouldn't be so confused when I live as, as a Christian. Where is your power and goodness and peace when I don't feel any of that stuff? So there's a, there's a part of our hearts that's constantly living with a Judas part of our heart and a Mary part of our heart. Every Christian holds both of those things. I think we just have to be honest about that fact. Being honest about the fact that I will constantly worship Jesus in a self-motivated fashion. And once we're honest about that fact, now we can enter into those things and say, God, will you purify my heart? Will you give me a way forward from that constant dilemma of, of, um, of abandoning you and leaving you when it doesn't work for the agenda that I really have? And what, what's Peter's agenda? If you look back in our passage, Peter's agenda is to be better than other people. If you, if you look here in... Um, in the passage, early in the passage, it's, he says, everyone else may leave you, but I will never leave you. What is, he, what is he saying? These other people are not nearly as dedicated as I am. I'm the religious Navy SEAL here. And by the way, every church has somebody like that. Every church has got somebody trying to be the hardest Christian in the group. I remember I lived in a church, I was at a church when, there was a dude who was like, I carry a life-size cross. No shame if that person, if you know this person, okay? <laughs> you don't know what towns I've lived in. I like, dude, I go to Del Taco on Thursdays, I carry a life-size cross of Jesus with little wheelies on the back, and I, cr well, I walk into Del Taco, plop that thing down, have tacos, talk to people about Jesus, and I was like, I wanna be so, I wanna assume the best intent from that guy. <laughs> But it seems a little wonky. One, if you're gonna carry the cross, just carry the cross. Like, why does it have to have little rubber wheels from, from True Value Hardware on the back of it? Like, there's always somebody trying to say, these other people are gonna leave you? I'm, I'm, I'm hard. I'm dedicated to this. And what is that? That's a mixed motivation to say, like, I will follow Jesus because it gives me this thing that helps me to feel better than other people. Because I'm using Jesus for my self-worth. And I don't mean to poke holes in every Christian thing you ever do. I'm just saying like there are these internal sin issues that, that go. Let's keep talking about Peter. When he, he's asking questions around, Jesus, which one of us is gonna be the greatest and sit at your right hand and the disciples are sort of competing and arguing who's on the inner circle with Jesus? Who are the people that get pulled away when Jesus says, hey, can we talk? And it's sort of the, the planning and the, the huddle. And there's an exclusion there and there's an inner circle and so there's the rest of the disciples. And th that feels special. It must feel special. And and there's something that happens in the human heart where you're going, I feel like somebody, and then we, we use that, we twist that. So Peter wanted status. Peter was a, a poor person with a working class family job of, around fishing in a time when the Ro Roman government was authoritarian and the religious elites were abusing their power and, and distorting what it's like to know God. And so there are these like 
oppressive forces that are just the norm for his life. And then all of a sudden the rabbi comes to him and says, will you be in my group and can I train you? And then it turns out to be Jesus. That's a total change in, in life. That's a, and you start to hear that, that the temple's gonna be torn down and rebuilt and now, now you have a way out of poverty. You have a way on top of the Roman government given this person and what the power that Jesus has exhibited. And now you're starting to fill your head with like, I'm gonna be somebody with status and comfort and security as long as I'm with this guy. But then he goes to the cross, or, or then he goes to the garden, then he's arrested, and now the contract is broken. We have mixed motivations. The funny thing about mixed motivations is that they are revealed in trials. And you don't know what they are for yourself. Like if you're a super self-aware person, great. Most of us find those things when you go through trials and loss. And you go, I thought that part of my heart was super genuine and in love with Jesus, but then when that thing was taken away from me, I found out that I need Jesus so much more than I ever thought I would need him. And that's where I wanna just close with this. Like, What do you do when you go through trials, you go through pain, you find that there's been sin in your life that you thought you had licked, but then it, it pops up in your life and you make decisions you thought you'd never make at work, in your personal life, when you're all alone. What do you do? What's the way forward? We have to see a way forward with Jesus, and fortunately we have it in the story of Peter. Let's ask that question. Like, If the disciples were the early leaders of the church, why then is the narrative here filled with stories of Peter's failure? Like if Peter's the church leader in Jerusalem that we find in Acts, then why is this narrative illustrating his worst failures? And it's because Peter is the um, eyewitness account to Mark. Peter is the content for the Gospel of Mark for the most part. Peter's all around the Gospel of Mark and it's almost certain that it's because Peter was the, the source. While Mark writes down, Peter's telling the stories. So this is an intentional story that Peter is saying, you need to include this. You need to inc include the time that I broke down and cried in public because my sin, I, I came to grips with how deep my sin was control over my life. So he breaks down in verse 72. But what happens? What happens in God's heart to like restore Peter? Well, in the resurrection, this is the, this is the last we hear of Peter. And the Gospel of Mark is kind of interesting because there's a cliffhanger at the end of it. It's sort of just like Jesus resurrects from the dead and then the women go into the tomb and then there's an angel there, Jesus isn't there, and then the angel of the Lord tells the women, go tell the disciples and Peter. Well, why does she say that? I'm sorry, why does he say that to, to them? The, the angel says that to them to say, you know what Peter's doing right now. You know the mood that Peter's in and the condition that he's in spiritually. So please understand that when uh, uh, the angel is saying, go talk to him because when Jesus said, you're all gonna fall away from me and he made that huge promise and he said, you know what, I'm gonna resurrect and I'll meet you in Galilee. And that was the promise earlier in the passage. The angel is saying, go tell Peter that it actually came true so that he can understand, even emotionally, how to proceed. So God sort of had his angel say, make sure we tell Peter. And if you look elsewhere in the Gospels, in John 21, um, the resurrected Jesus is um, on the shore and he's making a fire and he's like cooking fish and bread, okay? And then in the water, he's positioning himself there because in the water, the Peter is back on his normal fishing job. And then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, calls them in from the shore. They catch a bunch of fish. Jesus says, take the fish and let's eat them together. 
And then Peter understands that it's, it's Jesus. And so he sits down at the meal that Jesus prepared for him. And Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And I don't even know what I would say, but Peter says, yeah, yeah, I do. I really love you. And then uh, Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And then he, he does it three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. The, the, the question is obviously mapping on to the three denials that Peter did before the rooster crowed. So Jesus is like reversing the curse of Peter's denial and sin. I mean, what a better way to say, I still want you. There's a way forward for your faith. I'm gonna redeem you in a way that because you went from this loss and realized that your sin is mixed motivations and, and, and now if you're gonna let me heal you and t take you somewhere else in your faith, like, um, like what a better way to have a meal and to sit with Jesus and talk about it. It's such a beautiful, like, physical evidence of the heart of God to redeem Peter. So let's fast forward then to 1 Peter 5. And in 1 Peter 5, we see Pastor Peter, bishop over the church in Jerusalem, writing letters to the church to teach them about the, the redemption that's happened in his own life. And this is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. I appeal to you as fellow elders and the witnesses of Christ's sufferings. Remember, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Here, Peter says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. Watch over them, not pursuing dishonest gain. Mixed motivation. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Verse five, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is exactly what Peter had to learn through Mark 14. And then he says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. This is Peter telling his story of redemption. And I, I just wanna give you the encouragement. Like if you feel sort of like lost in the deconstruction of all things and it's just like a soupy mess of ideas, the way forward is with Jesus, the truth. He's the truth. He's the thing to fix your eyes on. He's the, the heart to connect to. And maybe even, this might seem stupid, maybe even like see the grace that Jesus gave to Peter and like see him making a meal for you and you sitting down and going like, I got these problems, I'm disappointed about those things. And then see Jesus addressing you directly. And then I hope God gives you even a vision this morning of the way forward with him. Like that God of grace, the resurrection power to change you and the graciousness to accept you back in. Let's pray.